Good morning. And a warm greetings from your senior pastor. Uh, Dad is in uh, Australia, and I'm sure would cover your prayers for his busy schedule as he's traveling. Um, while he's away, I, I thought I would do um, a light series on the Trinity. <laughs> Something I hope we don't regret. Or at least I don't. Um, and it, obviously this is a very difficult subject. And, but it's important because understanding the Trinity affects your worldview, it affects how you view marriage, it affects how you view worship, it affects every aspect of your life, every aspect of reality. And so that being said, I've enlisted the help of some friends and seeing as it is March and St. Patrick's Day is coming up. Um, I've asked if uh, St. Patrick and some of his friends would help bring some clarity uh, to this subject matter for us. And so I will turn it over to St. Patrick. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms, liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism, a heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. 
I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush, Patrick. Now let's all put on some giant green foam hats to celebrate our conversion. We should pray. <laughs> Let's do that. Father, we are abundantly aware that there's mystery in you. There are things we will not fully understand, and yet there are things that you have revealed to us through your word. And so we ask, Father, that we would see clearly. We ask that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he would help us to see and know and understand the things that have been revealed through the work of Christ, the ministry of the Spirit, in your sending of your Son. Father, that these things would be elevated, that we would not be caught up in, in, in doctrine that confuses us, but that there would be clarity, there would be oneness of mind, there would be unity of this body, in the celebrating of our God and Father and his Lord and his Son, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit. Father, come and be with us, for we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if someone were to ask you to explain the Trinity, you would fumble around like St. Patrick did. And thus, I think for... The Christians, we often think of the, the Trinity as a confusing doctrine. We don't fully understand it, we, and we feel like we cannot explain it, and so we leave it alone. And we pray desperately that someone that is uh, investigating the faith will not ask us to explain it in any capacity. But why the stigma? Is the Trinity something that we are better off leaving alone? Is it something that we leave entirely to, to, to the mystery of God? We, we just don't know. We can't explain it. We don't understand it. It's not mentioned in Scripture in terms of the, the, the word Trinity being used. It's not, there's no comprehensive definition of it in any one verse of Scripture. I think we struggle with it because the idea of one plus one plus one equals one sounds illogical and it sounds problematic. How can God be one? Deuteronomy chapter six, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and yet also be three. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the, the oneness of God set Yahweh apart from the polytheism of the day in Israel. 
The belief that there were many gods, a God for rain, a God for the seas, a God for the harvest. And these gods, they were, they were not universal, they were tribal, they were regional. The gods of the people of a particular uh, land reigned supreme on that land and over those people in their minds, unless they were defeated by an enemy in which showed that their gods were inferior to the conquering people and their gods. We see this in Nebuchadnezzar and Darius recognizing Yahweh as God to some extent or the man in the boat with Jonah when he tells them that he is running away from his God. And we've seen this over the last several weeks here in the life of Elijah as he's come against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But Israel's faith said that Yahweh was the one supreme God over all of creation and that all the other gods had been proven to be false. He was one. He was the single source of grace. He is the single author of creation and the single object of worship. And the doctrine of the Trinity is not to retreat from the Old Testament teachings. In fact, the unity of God is the bedrock of our very confession. But what about the Son? And what about the Spirit? And we'll be, what about their roles? And we'll be looking at them over the next two weeks. But we want to get this right because it is important. In fact, uh, as uh, St. Patrick pointed out in the Athanasian Creed, it, it, it was written in the fifth or sixth century. The creed begins like this. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith, meaning the Orthodox faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. Does that sound extreme, this idea of, of being withheld from eternity, for, that you'll perish in eternity if you do not believe in the Trinity? How can that be? It's because holding a Trinitarian view of God is the only right view of God. If someone were to walk up to you and say, well, I believe in Jesus only. Uh, don't believe Father, Son, none of that other stuff. And Jesus is the one that came on the earth and so I only believe in him. You would tell that person, you're not a Christian, that you can't hold that. How do you hold with the scriptures of, of the Son sending the Spirit or, or, or that he keeps saying he's here to do the will of his Father? You see, the bedrock of our faith is God himself, and therefore, I must know my God as he presents himself in his word. The God who created the world, the God who revealed himself to us, the God who brings salvation for his people, that God is the triune God, and I must believe in him, otherwise I worship a false God. But how is God revealed 
in Trinity. And we must start with God before creation. Because it is at this point that we must ask the question, and I'm sure some of you parents have had this from your children, what was God doing before creation? And it's an excellent question. Because in it, we get the answer to Trinity. Because if God is alone by himself before creation, then he creates creation out of a a desire for companionship or out of a need in some capacity. And then that makes God dependent on us. It makes God dependent on his creation. It makes God a needy God. And we know that that is not the case. And we know that Jesus refers to himself and in scripture he is referred to as the son of God. And there, that therefore implies that he has a father. And we know time and time again God is referred to as a father. Exodus chapter 4, he refers to Israel as his firstborn son. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, God carries his people as a father carries his son. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5, he disciplines them as a father disciplines his son. Isaiah prays in Isaiah 63 and 64, you are our father, you, O Lord, are our father. And then again, Jesus refers to God as his father. He directs his prayers to our father. He tells his disciples that he will return to my father and your father, my God and your God in John chapter 20. Peter and Paul refer to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 15 and 1 Peter chapter 1. Hebrews is filled with fatherhood language. Scripture is showing us that this is who God has revealed himself to be. He's not first and foremost creator or ruler, but father. Everything he does is as a father. It is who he is. He creates as a father. He rules as a father. He disciplines his children as a father. Do you see what this does? It gives the believer a new application for for the work of God. Our, Our God rules his creation as a kind and a loving and a generous and a self giving father. But let me take this a step further as we make our point about the fatherhood of God before creation. As a father, God is life giving. And God was life-giving before he created anything. From eternity, he has been life-giving. We see this in John's first epistle in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And John is referring to the Father because in verse 9, right after this, he says, this is how we, he showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son. The God who is love 
is the father who sends his son. Before anything else in creation, this God was loving, giving life to, and delighting in the son. It is part of who he is. He could not not love. For if he did not, he would not be the father. Think about this. God could not be love if there was no one for him to love. He could not be a father unless he had a child, a son. He is not loving if he only loves himself. How many of us would know someone who only loves themselves and we would call them a loving person? Now you call that a a selfish person. They're, They're the opposite of loving because they're not setting their love on someone else. They set it on themselves. But... Father, says Jesus, the son in John 17, 24, you loved me before the creation of the world. The eternal son, the eternal son, who according to Colossians 1 is before all things, the one through whom all things were created. The one Hebrews chapter one calls Lord and God who laid the foundations of the earth. It is He who is loved by the Father before the creation of the world. The Father, then, is the Father of the eternal Son. And he finds his identity, his fatherhood, in loving and giving out his life and his being to the Son. This is why the son is the eternal son. There was never a time when he did not exist. He is not a creation of the father. He is co-eternal with the father. Otherwise, you end up with the heresies that our cartoon friends brought forward. Partialism, modalism, Arianism, adoptionism, the idea that, that, that God took a man and adopted him as a son And so he is a man who's got uh, uh, some divine being in him. No, those take away from the eternal existence of Christ and the sufficiency of his atonement. It, it, It takes away from his personhood and therefore it makes that atoning sacrifice incomplete or insufficient. It doesn't cancel out our debt. It doesn't cover our sins. If he is a created being, then his sacrifice cannot save us because then he is not God. And then he's not a a willing participant. And and, and next week we're going to look at Christ and his being fully God and, and fully man and how that plays out in salvation. But for today, we see the son must be co-eternal with the father because if he is not, then there was a time when the father was not yet a father. And if that is the case, then there was a time when God was not loving since all by himself, he would have had no one to love. We've covered the love of the father for the son. Again, John 3, 35, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. 
But what about the love of the Son for the Father? Jesus says in John 14, 31, the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly as he commands. So it's not just that the Father loves the Son, the Son also loves the Father. And so much so that to do his, the Father's will is the food of the Son, as Jesus says in John chapter 4. And yet while the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father, there is a, a definite form to the relationship. What do I mean by that? Overall, the Father is the lover and the Son is the beloved. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The Bible over and over and over again talks about the love of the father for the son. And while the son clearly loves the father, there are not as many verses that say as much. And that means that the father's love, in that father's love, he sends and directs the son. The son never sends and directs the father. That's the nature of their relationship. And as it turns out, that is hugely significant. As Paul takes note in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. In other words, the, the, the form of the father and son relationship, the, the headship, it starts this flow of, of love. As the father is the lover and the head of the son, so the son goes out to be the lover and the head of the church, his bride. And as the father has loved me, so have I loved you, the son says in John 15, verse 9. And therein lies the very goodness of the gospel. As the father is the lover of the son, the beloved so Christ became the lover of the church, the beloved. And that means that Christ loves the church first and foremost. He's not waiting for a response from the church. His love comes first. And we love because he first loved us, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Where else do we see this nature of headship and love and flow? Where else do we see this? We see it in marriages. Husbands being the heads of their wives. Loving them as Christ the head loves his bride, the church. He is the lover, she is the beloved. And like the church then, wives are not left to earn their husband's love. They can enjoy it as something lavished on them freely, without condition. Men, if you're making your wives earn your love, then you have broken the chain of this fountain. 
Do, do you see why discipleship is so important in the church? Men and women are coming out of brokenness and they're seeking new life and they're seeking new purpose. They've seen the failures of, of what the world has sold them or of what a, a particular philosophy or some other religion has given them. And they see that it comes to this terrible ends. And so they come and they find life and they find purpose in Christ and in his church, his body, the church. And it's our job to, to, to train these people up in, in these doctrines and these truths that emanate from scripture. Because the world is happy to give them a different narrative of what marriage is supposed to look like. Of what the nature of a relationship between a man and a woman is supposed to look like. Young people have grown up in the church, but they still don't know what a biblical marriage looks like. In fact, one of the greatest ministries I've seen in the church was for young couples who didn't have a clue what Christian marriage looked like. And members of the church opened their doors, opened their hearts, and invited these young couples in and modeled for them what biblical headship looks like. Not lording it over, but giving sacrificially, considering the emotions of their, of their beloved. And they're being discipled along the way and they're showing the, the consistency of scripture and the truth being lived out, not perfectly, but under grace. For eternity, the Father so loves the Son that he stirs up the Son's eternal love. And Christ so loves the church that he stirs up our love in response. The husband so loves his wife that he stirs her up to love him back. And the Spirit is involved in all of these relationships, serving to energize the love between fa the Father and the Son, Christ and the church, and the believing couple, the believing husband and wife. And do you see the picture here? It's like a fountain switched on, and love is flowing from the Father to the Son to the church, and imagine what this does for relationships within the church. Instead of looking after our own interests, because of this great love, because we have been so abundantly covered in this, caught up in this love between the Father and the Son and the Son for the church, we can actually look after the interests of others. Husbands and wives, neighbors and strangers. It's a contagious love that spreads because it emanates from the eternal Father. And this explains creation for us as well. For if the Father has always loved another in the Son by the Spirit, then it makes sense that in the overflow, the overflow, the, the superabundance of this love for the Son that he would create so that others might enjoy the love relationship between Father and Son through the Spirit. And that we should be 
then created in that image, in the image of God, and that we would be destined to be brought into conformity in the likeness of Christ. You see, it's just a continuation of the overflowing movement of love. And do you see it actually gives us a right and proper definition of love? It doesn't give us the definition of love is love. It makes no sense. There's no, there's no definition in that. This is definition. The God who loves to have an outgoing image of himself in the Son loves to have many images of his love who are themselves outgoing, shining forth just as a lamp shines forth light. It is the nature and the essence of a lamp to bring light. That is what we are to be. All of this to say that the very nature of the triune God, the Trinity, is at odds with the nature of other gods. You see, Satan himself is the definitive, needy, and solitary God. He sets his love on no one, and he only seeks his own glory. He shares it with no one, and he is at complete odds with the loving, gracious, overflowing, self-giving God. In fact, the Godhead shares in the glory together between the three persons. You've probably noticed this in scripture, but each person of the Godhead deflects glory for themselves and shines it on another member of the Trinity. The Father deflects and gives glory to the Son and the Spirit. The Son deflects by speaking of what the Father has done and his sending of him and that he will send the Spirit one day. And the Spirit is always, always, always elevating the work of Christ. But you see, the same can be said of Satan, can be said of the idols that we have created in our hearts. They are empty, they are hungry, they are grasping, they are envious. While God is generous and radiant and self-giving, and yet we give our time and our attention to those things over God. Now I understand that the, the fatherhood of God can be a difficult subject for, for some of us. Not because of God, but because you have had a, a hard earthly father in one way or another. The 20th century French philosopher Michel Foucault had this same issue. The majority of his life's work was about the evils of authority. And it seems to stem from the authority figure in his life, which was his father. His father was desperate not to raise a, a, a weakling of a son. And so he would often aim to, to toughen him up. And being a surgeon, Foucault's father would bring Michel to witness gruesome amputations. As one author put it, the image certainly has all the ingredients of a recurrent nightmare the sadistic father, the impotent child, the knife-cutting flesh, 
the body cut to the bone, the demand of acknowledge of the sovereign power of the patriarch and the inexpressible humiliation of the son having his manliness put to the test. For Foucault, the image of the father is a dark one. Instead of love and care and blessing, he had violence and humiliation and control. But the problem here is that God the Father is not a model of the earthly father. It is, in fact, the opposite. It should be the opposite. The the eternal father is the supreme model of what a father should be for his children. And some earthly fathers are better representations of this than others. While others are in fact sometimes a model of Satan. My prayer is that whether you have had a good earthly father or a bad earthly father, that you would hear what we said this morning and rejoice over the goodness of the father who art in heaven. The father who set his love on his beloved, his eternal son, who was in constant unity and communion with him up until one point in history. That one moment when the lover had to turn his back on his beloved son as he hung cursed on a tree, bearing the guilt and the stain of sin from me, from you. And as terrible as that moment was, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Why? Because it opened the door for you and I, corrupt in our sin nature, desperate for the atoning sacrifice, sufficient for our salvation. And in a moment, we are going to celebrate that one point in history together with fellow image bearers of God with fellow uh, participants in that love relationship between the Father and the Son through the Spirit, the fountain that flowed from the Father to the Son, to the church, that we would see one another and that we would recognize we wouldn't see our difficulties and our conflicts, but that we would see each other through this lens, the lens that you are a co-heir with Christ alongside me, people who have been loved first so that we too may love. Let's pray. Father, it could be easy to just uh, make this a a technical thing in in trying to get a right understanding of the nature of the relationship and and thinking through these things, and I think all of that would be lost. And yet you knew our feeble minds and hearts and lack of understanding, and, and you've given us such a vivid picture And over and over again, we read in the scripture of the love for the Father, for the Son. And in this holy communion that we're about to partake in, we 
we see the desperation of the breaking of that relationship for a time. When the son willingly lays his life down of his own accord. But he's also following the will of the father so that the father can elevate him in in greater glory so that the atonement would cover our sins, the blood being shed that we should be paying is instead covered by the blood of the Son, that we can glorify and be glorified as well in him, in that relationship, in that unbreakable relationship between Father and Son. And so, Father, as we partake of these elements, may they serve as a reminder of that relationship of what the Son has done, of what you, Father, have done in the sending of your Son and what it cost you, and in the work of the Holy Spirit in helping us to see our fellow believers, as Paul tells the church in Corinth that they need to recognize the body, meaning the body of believers, the body that's gathered here, that we are in union with Christ. And just as the Son has set his love on the church so we can set our love on one another. A gracious, self-effacing love. So Father, we thank you for these elements. We thank you for you in Trinity, for that is who you are. For we pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.